It's May 10th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines, and we'll just start it right out with the switchblade loitering munition, which is ready to be produced in thousands for Ukraine if Washington acts. And of course, uh, the switchblade, that loitering munition, kind of gained a little bit of fame. Looks like the article gave me a little bit of background. The 300, which it kind of is more anti-personnel and light armor vehicles, came out in 2011, 2012. Whereas the larger Switchblade 600 came out in 2020, roughly 2020. And so the first is kind of like 60K. The second is about 240K. So the Switchblade 600 is actually kind of similar in price to a Javelin. Um, But one of the interesting things here that they were talking about is that the Switchblade, which kind of was funded by the Army under Lethal Miniature Aerial Munitions Systems, or LBAMs, was actually never termed a program of record. And so it kind of potentially got a little bit of short shrift in the budget. The more recent budget purchased just 525 of them um, compared to last year's 900. They said they needed fewer switchblades due to reduced replenishment requirements. So potentially uh, Ukraine is going to make them kind of rethink that strategy. Uh, But one of the most interesting parts here is that AeroVironment, which of course makes the switchblade, has already purchased materials <laughs> to ensure that future orders can be filled. And so they're basically just saying, like, we're ready to go. We just need a government co- like contract that's at higher priority for this to kind of get going. So it looks like, you know, Air Environment, roughly a non-traditional, but they've been around for a while um, and kind of traditional in many ways. But, you know, they took a lot of risk here, it looks like, to kind of lean in expecting um, some purchases. Yeah, it definitely does does look like that. If they, I don't know, maybe they got some kind of you know informal signal that the the army was prepared to to buy more of them. But then, you know, budget realities, which these things aren't that expensive, so it's almost really not an excuse. But you know, one of those things where you know they maybe bought more Jagums or started to invest in some of these higher end hypersonic missiles that the army is trying to get after with long range fires. You know, so it may have been one of those munitions sort of balancing things where they're like, you know, well, the other the other piece of this that strikes me, too, is that while there's definitely been some testing with the Army and the Navy, too, right? We know the Navy's sort of played with these and some of the experiments. It's, you know, had they really been integrated into kind of Army doctrine, Army tactics? Um, Is it something that every infantry unit knows how to do? So kind of curious about. You know, when we term something a program of record, I think there's a lot implied in that it's sort of gone through a long development process. It's gone through a lot of wickets to get buy-in, right? Because if you start a big development effort, you have to go through, get requirements and do testing events and users have to, you know, kind of sign off on it and operationally accept it. It sort of sounds like this one got maybe a little bit more fast-tracked. Um and maybe didn't get fully integrated. And maybe that's, maybe that's why there's not the, you know, um, support for it in the, in the budget to, to kind of plus it up to the levels that the aero environment would want. So hard to tell exactly, but that, that could be part of it. And I think you're absolutely right, Eric. I think uh, seeing how the uh, Ukrainians use this to just decimate the uh, uh, Russian, you know, not just light vehicles, not just combat vehicles, but tanks. I mean, using something in a backpack to take out a tank. Um, and we always had it with like, you know, javelins and 
bazookas and things like that. But to, you know, you see, you see some of these now they're holding them in their hand. It's just impressive. So, um, so yeah, hard, hard to tell exactly, but I think you're right. I think that probably will change and we'll probably see this company. And, you know, since this is not an overly complex system, I could easily see some competition popping up here in the near, in your future. And I think we're going to talk about an Israeli company too here. So, yeah, the Firefly, um, seems like there's a few of those coming around, but you know, I wonder first, you know, I've heard some conflicting stories, like some, uh, folks have been kind of saying that the switchblade hadn't been performing in Ukraine, but if Ukraine's asking for him, like saying, this is something we need, that's pretty much as strong of, uh, you know, demand signal as you can get. Right. So, but my, my real question is also what is, you know, what does the supply chain and production time kind of look like for a switchblade versus a javelin? Right. Cause we've heard recently in the past few days that, you know, Lockheed and Raytheon, I think they're kind of like a team, but they want to spin up javelin and double like their production rate or something. And they have supply chain challenges. So that gets them from like 500 to a thousand or so, maybe a little bit more than a thousand. Um, but, you know, what, what does that actually look like for the switchblade? Are they able to actually turn these out at a much higher rate and then potentially come down the learning curve much faster and get cheaper? Or is there something different going on? I think they have the same warhead though. So I'd like to understand some of those dynamics in the industrial base too. I remember when the, we were we were trying to plus up like the SDB and JDAM and uh, some of these some of these uh, you know lower end munition lines. I, I, a big part of it that kept coming up with the suppliers was just the for one the labor to basically train people because this is munition. It's you know it, it sort of has to be uh, manufactured right to the right specs or you know kind of bad things can happen. So there was like a personnel uh, training piece. Um, and then it was, you know, some of it was like, you know, if you were using a fabricator, if you had always had a really low level of production, you may not have had the uh, wherewithal to make an investment to sort of like maybe buy, you know, some super high end 3D printer or some, you know, anything, some, some type of additive manufacturing sort of, you know, kind of tool. You, you might just go to your typical, you know, forger and just say, yeah, I, I need you know, these things and these sizes and, and that's your approach. But if you need to, if you need to surge, that makes it really hard because those, you know, those vendors you're going to can't, don't have the capacity to get you more of, you know, the bomb bodies or whatever it is. So I wonder if it's not something just as simple as that is that if the army was willing to pay for them to plus up the line and give them some investment, which is what we had to do for, uh, for, for Boeing to, to ramp up JDAMs, um, then I wonder, I wonder if they could make a lot more, uh, I wonder if they could get faster on that. They could probably make some really critical investments and, you know, get some things in there that would make it a lot easier to produce these. So uh, you're right though. Don't, I don't know the exact details here, but, but that was something we saw in the past. Yeah. I know the army has recently talked about their organic industrial base. They want to put something like 18 billion over the next 15 years and, 500 million a year, particularly to the army ammo um, kind of program that they're doing. But it seems like, you know, how much of this is actually being done at these kind of go-co facilities like Radford and in Tennessee and otherwise, and how much is being done in other places, um, particularly just like contractor owned facilities. You know, a lot of this seems like how much of it is the energetics, the propul propulsion kind of stuff 
like all that kind of stuff that's kind of, you know, more bespoke. And then how much is, you know, the chemical, the inputs, and then how much are like those bodies and, you know, like for JDAM, right? That, that just uses the GBU 31. Like the JDAM yeah. is just like the fins, right? So why why should like that kind of the the, the that modification kit and and other types of electronics on it take so long to ramp up for the JDAM? Yeah, the JDAM was a little bit easier. Um, small diameter bomb was a little bit harder. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of pieces to it. I will be honest that the thing that scares me more is that as we get into the China fight, we, you know, we're not going to be able to use, you know, all of these types of, uh, you know, really low end weapons, right? We're going to have to have more that have range and speed. So you're, we're going to need to get more into the naval strike missiles and, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the hypersonics, PRSMs. And yeah, the jet, the engines on those is going to be really, really hard to ramp up. Those, those cruise missile engines, those, you know, hypersonic engines are going to be, I think a huge long lead item. And if you're not, if you're not thinking about it in advance, you're going to have a really hard time surging. Well, that's going to be the trade-off, right? Like you're just going to run out of like, no matter what in a, in a Pacific fight, you're just going to run out of those. And some of them like the precision missile, right? The PRSM, that that one's only like 500 kilometers. It's not even that long of a range, but yeah, we'll see. I think, you know, I think GE, they've been talking about 3D printing a lot of components for jet engines. Like maybe there will be, I mean, that's probably too distant in the future, right? I don't know if we're going to get to like cheaper cruise missiles uh, within the Davidson window, but. Ah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. All right, well, let's move on to Defense Innovation Unit Chief to resign in September. And of course, that is Michael Brown, Mike Brown at DIU. Um, he put in to the department just a couple of weeks ago that he's going to end his term September 2nd. Um, and he's been serving since 2018. Of course, he's been pushing for, I, I like this article because they said he's pushing for changes to DOD's budgeting process and advocating for greater adoption of commercial technology right on. But of course, as we remember uh, the DOD IG, I believe they still like, it sounds like they still have that investigation on Mike Brown as to his hiring practices which basically nixed him for the USD acquisition sustainment job. And yeah, I guess that kind of like maybe some of that, that kind of uh, snuff on getting that position that could, where he could really make a difference. And then also DIU seeming to get deprioritized at 20% of its budget cut um, as well. Maybe um, that kind of pushed him out the door. Right. Um, but hopefully he stays around. He's, done a lot of great stuff he's really smart on acquisition now i hope he kind of stays in the fight yeah for sure i could uh i could rant and rave about this one for a while but uh <laughs> probably would start using curse words so um i mean i think if there was actually an article out today that he wrote um pretty scathing uh basically made the point that he hasn't met with the DevSecDef in the entire year that he's um He's been there since uh, since she came on, or or the SecDef, I presumably. But um, you know, and and so given that he's operating at that high level, and given that the department has been saying all the right things about commercial and the fact that we have to you know attract more non traditionals and we have to you know do tech transition and take advantage of AI and software, saying all these things, the fact that uh, he is not getting the support 
or really any attention um, is just sort of baffling, especially since like there's already been trips out to different Silicon Valley companies and he's sort of like bizarrely not present. And yeah, you would think, because yeah, Hicks went over to Silicon Valley yeah. and with a bunch of people. Yeah, he wasn't even there. Like Ash Carter had all sorts of times for DIU and, you know, what's happening, right? Yeah, it's, it's really baffling that they wouldn't turn. I mean, the other piece of it is, is mo- let's, 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 let's be honest, right? Most of the leadership in the department comes from the, you know, think tank, you know, uh, sort of, you, you know, foreign policy, you know, right. all that kind of background. He's like the one person in the department who is a CEO of a major company who understands, has the relationships even with Silicon Valley, with really, you know, senior people there who understands the culture. And the fact that he was marginalized just, I don't know, just makes me red in the face. So I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's, it's a real shame. We're going to you know lose a huge asset. And I'm with you. I hope he does something kind of related and keeps his finger on the, on the DOD, uh, you know, acquisition process and calls out the, uh, calls out the madness when he sees it. But um, I'll be honest, I'll be surprised if he sticks around till September. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder what, like, what is useful for these, these individuals kind of leaving the department. So we had Preston Dunlap leave, Nick Shaylon left. They both read, wrote these kind of scathing things that seemed to be kind of just like, it got some press, but most of the people in the department just kind of wrote them off, you know? And then Mike Brown was leaving. I, you said he wrote something. I haven't, I haven't checked it out. Um, Jason Weiss, who was the CSO, Chief Software Officer, he just left as well. Uh, he didn't write anything scathing, but he was also just like, I had no authority to do like the things that I needed to do. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is kind of sad to see um, all this happening. And then you're right. The leadership is kind of like of a different ilk than than those folks that are leaving. Um that there was probably some hope for like the 2018, 19 timeframe, but you know, you still see more coming in lift exec Craig Martell has been tapped for the chief digital and AI officer CDAO. Um, he was actually at the post post Naval postgraduate school for over a decade, but has been a lift executive. So I'm interested to see, you know, will he have any, that's actually a relatively important position as well. Um, Maybe it will have a little bit more sway than uh, than the chief software officer. But I'll be interested to see what he can do. Yeah, I, I do think the the CDAO, which is really Jake renamed um, with uh, some additional well, kind of duties added on. Well, DDS, Defense Digital Services, yeah. in there, right? And Advana is randomly in there, maybe not randomly. But the, I think they have like six swim lanes and Jake is one of them. Yeah, Jake is the big one. DDS was a relatively sort of sort of small marginal organization, but Jake was sort of like you know kind of building a little bit of an empire. And yeah. uh, they so they're you know they're going to be taking on sort of that role, like you said, some of these other roles. But I I remain convinced that they are also going to be really challenged to push things on the service. I think if it's going to have to be one of those things where they make the business case to the services and the services want to do it. They want to go to them for their AI solutions. They want to use trade wins. They, you know, they want the support, the training, all those things that uh, that Jake was going to provide, and that CDAO will will will, will of course be continuing. Um, that's that's what remains to be seen. I think that will determine whether he becomes another frustrated sort of exec govy, you know, exec turned govy, 
or if he you know is able to make the change that he uh, came in to, to make and uh, can be effective. So I think uh, the jury's still out on that one. Yeah, we had um, at George Mason Center for Government Contracting, we had like a little AI thing this week or this past week, and some of the Jake folks were there. My understanding was where they were kind of building you know, applications before they're just like, no, we're just going to support what the services want. And I guess, you know, provide some support there, but then also, you know, the joint common foundations, which that can rest on that no one else is really cognizant of, but as, as to like specific AI applications, it doesn't seem like they're going to like, you know, build the next target recognition or autonomous X and then like try to push it on, um, the services like they were a DIU potentially or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they will have the ADA initiative, which is for the COCOMs. Uh, that'll be one of their projects. CDAO does say that they'll take on some additional things. I think we will see some sort of enterprise data solutions, um, different things like that. That yeah, might that seems like their swim lane, right? Yeah, yeah. So they might take on some of those, but I think there'll be kind of handfuls of things. The the real scaling piece will yeah still be at the surface level. All right. And Dural Industries in talks with Australia on autonomous undersea vehicle. So it looks like Andural is negotiating a $100 million deal to design, develop, and manufacture an under or an autonomous undersea vehicle. They're saying it's an extra large autonomous undersea vehicle. And it has an incredibly ambitious delivery schedule of just three years. And of course, Andural recently acquired the firm Dive Technologies, which has its own vehicles. So I think they're going to fit it out with some of their, you know, AI and lattice type technologies for networking and see where they get to. But there was, there was a guy on Twitter that was basically just saying like, it's going to be funny if Andorl in Australia can field an extra large UUV before the Department of Defense does, which of course actually just christened the Orca extra large UUV. So, I, you know, they're going to have to make up a lot of space, but, you know, potentially if they're smaller, more nimble, um, kind of company than Boeing, which is running the Orca. You know, we'll see what happens. But you know, the U.S. is being slowed. It's not just that you have Boeing, like a traditional contractor, that might be a little bit slower. But you know, Congress is also slow rolling these types of programs as well. So they're they're facing a lot of issues there in the unmanned sphere in the Navy. So I'm, you know, I'll be honest. I was a little surprised here, um, given that the I think Australia has been trying to. Uh, sort of team, you know, with the U.S. ever since AUKUS, the AUKUS deal was signed. I'm a little bit surprised that they are not getting in on the ORCA, um, which, you know, is supposed to be kind of open architecture, reconfigurable. You know, it's actually got all the sensors in there, navigation, you know, situation awareness, all the comm stuff. Like, it has all that stuff sort of figured out, at least to a certain degree, I'm sure it'll be iterated on. But, uh, and that contract was for $43 million. So Boeing... For 43 million, it was awarded back in uh, February of 2019, and it was to deliver four four of those those ships. The Australian one is for 100 million. Can't for tell three. exactly. Yeah, for there's three, three of them, I think. Yeah, for three of them, and it's a three year development program. So, for one, Andrew has no experience with this, so they're right. re- very much relying on Dive Technologies to kind of run this. And I don't think Dive Technologies is a technology is a defense company, so they probably don't understand all the nuances of like all the defense technologies. I don't know. This seems a little bit unnecessary. I think if I was Australia, I would have gone in on the Orca, leveraged sort of those, uh, uh, you know, 
you know, kind of connections with the, with the, the Navy side and you would have probably got some quantities of scale, easier sort of upgrades and stuff. So I'm a little bit confused about that, but, uh, well, it, is a, it feels like a hedge, right? Like, maybe it's a hedge, yeah, right? Maybe. Like if Orca works out fine, then they can just like buy it in quantity. And if Andurals fails, then you know, write off a hundred million or whatever. I'm sure Andurals also putting a lot of their self-funded effort into it. Um, but if it works out, then maybe you know, who knows? Like what the differential could be in cost capability, you know, cost effectiveness, you know, in the future. So I'm kind of I like the fact that you know if these types of new companies aren't going to get a shot in the U S maybe they can get a shot somewhere else and boomerang back to the U S or show, you know, where the worth is. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I always like, I always like to have competition. It's just, you know, I, I fear a little bit that, you know, most of a lot of the experts say that, you know, China has a pretty near term plan for making a move. And so if that is the case, waiting three years, you know, that's a lot of lost time to kind of build up your, you know, your kind of, uh, your con ops and your, you know, training and all that stuff. So it, it does put them a little behind if, if that is the schedule, but well, I'm when is the U S yeah. supposed to like field the Orca, right? Like, I don't even know what that timeline is. Like if that's going to be three years, right. Uh, there's no well, they got the one. record for it, right. <laughs> they, they got it. I guess yeah. they'll do some experiments with it. But, oh, well, you know, good point. No, you're, you're absolutely right. They have, the Navy has not integrated it, but, I see that happening. I think the Navy has is sort of of the mind based on sort of some of the, you know, some of the things that we've read is, you know, of the mind that the extra large stuff sort of makes more sense. The smaller stuff, they really haven't got their head around. So I think the, uh, I think this extra large one will probably, I think I could see it being integrated into the, into the con ops, you know, fairly quickly. Cause it's basically like a small sub that can do some of the same things. Whereas, you know, some of the smaller ones are a little bit trickier and you got to use them in different ways and swarm them and do it, you know, do stuff right. like that. Right, so, yeah. yeah. Agree. Well, like, let's let's move back on to Boeing here. Boeing to move headquarters from Chicago to Arlington, Virginia. And that's, of course, where I live. <laughs> so um, <laughs> good for house prices here, I guess. And house prices don't need to go up anymore, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. No, tra- no traffic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Boeing... I, they, they had that huge building that they built, you know, about 10 years ago in Crystal City. It's like right yeah. at the, the north end of Crystal City. Um, they, I remember I had like an office that was the building where they built in front of it. And we're like, oh, well, there goes our view. But um, <laughs> yeah, so the airplane manufacturer was so when they moved to Chicago, of course, in Chicago, that was the head of McDonnell Douglas. Right. And so they moved to Chicago. It was kind of weird. Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas, but then. You know, they kind of moved to Chicago where McDonnell Douglas was headquartered and a lot of their financial people kind of took over the company. Uh, But I guess Chicago provided them a 20 year tax break incentive that was 60 million dollars. And that kind of, you know, is now over. It's expired. So nothing's keeping Boeing in Chicago and they're moving to Arlington. And it shows, I guess, another point that Boeing is kind of pivoting to defense and kind of trying to rely a little bit less on commercial, even though they're still basically the only big, you know, jet aircraft manufacturer on the commercial side in the U S. So. Yeah. I read something about that, that uh, I don't know if it's their long-term plan, but it sounds like that their commercial business has just taken such a hit that they don't have any plans, any ability to recover in the near term. 
and so they're hoping to kind of fill the gap with defense work. And um, so, yeah, what I always it always sort of bothers me a little bit when when you see the justification for moving closer to the Pentagon is that, as it was phrased in the article, it will move Boeing closer to key customers such as the Pentagon and the Department of Defense officials, uh, and also place Boeing closer to federal regulators. It's like I don't know yeah, something inside me. That says, <laughs> I know I don't like that. Yeah, but I mean you're right. A lot of the companies have a presence in Northern Virginia. Uh, lobbying is you know is this part of the business? So will it really change anything in the long term? Probably not. But uh, but yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, you know, it's also interesting. There's that recent article, Boeing adds $1 billion in new charges for Air Force One replacement T-7 Red Hawk. And the article basically is breaking down like Boeing kind of, so we had the better buying power, remember, right? And fixed price incentive development was kind of the hot thing. And Boeing kind of underbid a bunch of programs, including uh, the T-7A, the trainer, Air Force One, KC-46, and the MQ-25, and it looks like, you know, in those development programs are taking fairly, fairly substantial hits um, in the billions of dollars. And Boeing is basically betting, hey, as long as, you know, government comes in with big production contracts, we can make it up on the back end, right? But um, still, they're, they're in a short-term squeeze. No thoughts on the fixed price underbid? I guess they, they get what they asked for, but you actually almost end up winning. Like, I guess one of my, you know, they have this thing um, in procurement auction theories called like the winner's curse, where it's just like, if everyone bids their best guess and you give it to the lowest price, like that person just by random or by statistical happenstance, they were the one that happened to underestimate the job the most, right? Everyone tries to estimate the job. You're errored around what the actual cost is, and you just happen to pick the lowest. So the person who wins actually is expected to lose money. But in the Department of Defense, because most of the dollars is in production and sustainment, you're willing to take that, and it's actually like a blessing, right? It's like, fine, I underbid it, but like I'm going to get all these change orders and all this production contract. So it's really a blessing, you know, in some ways, if you can if you can power through it. Well, most of the big primes too, they know the cost estimate, they know what's appropriated or, you know, likely to be appropriated. So they have, they already have a good picture of like, you know, what the, what the cap is. Um, so yeah, there it's, it's fairly, I think, intentional when they, uh, when they underbid either, you know, maybe it is just optimism on some of their engineering teams parts, or maybe it is a deliberate corporate decision. I've never, never been entirely clear about that, but, um, yeah, the one thing about fixed price contract, I, you know, KC-46 did it right. And, you know, uh, small diameter bomb, you know, Raytheon, small diameter bomb two was a, was a fixed price. I'm sorry, the government paid, right? The government has been paying for KC-46 to fix the RVMS to, you know, to fix other things to basically, you know, pay for, pay for modifications. Is there a sh- sharing of costs? Yes. You know, uh, is it good, you know, to, does it require the government playing hardball and pushing back a lot? Yes. So, you, ha- you you know, it's it's not that the government ever is going to get off scot-free. They're either going to have a fight on their hands, they're going to wind up paying, and they're going to wind up waiting, um, you know. And so it's, there's a cost there. And so I, I am increasingly against anything where there is, if there is risk, there's no, if there's de- demonstrable risk, you know, fixed price is just silly. You know, ra- I'd rather have 
the the uh, you know a cost type contract with incentives, really clear incentives, um, with big money against the incentives, and then a really good integrated engineering team, government engineering team that actually is staying abreast of what's going on. So, yeah, I, I don't think um, I don't think we should do these in the future, but yeah, I'm not sure the lesson that DoD has learned or not. So. I forgot I I didn't put uh, the article in there, but I think last week I'm sure you saw it. There was the the NASA administrator who was basically like cost plus contracting has like destroyed you yeah, know aerospace yeah. industry. Um, people always have this kind of like fixed price cost plus debate. Uh, I'm surprised you kind of came down on pretty hard on the cost plus side there. Well, I mean, I, I would, I, apart from cast and all that stuff, I mean, I don't like that aspect of cost, but right. I think, I think it's silly to say it goes back to our predictive, you know, the whole predictive, mindset of defense acquisition of you know being able to articulate all the risks that will be uh you know kind of realized and and expecting to kind of build that in and then you know it, it puts you in this weird situation like we were in this situation with raytheon on sdb2 where it's like yeah the tests were not going well like the the, the seeker was not able to see through some of the environments it was not able to acquire the target consistently it's like okay that is that is a challenge. That's something that's a technological challenge. It's not completely out of the realm. Are you going to beat up on this, you know, defense company and make them, you know, pay billions of dollars out of their own pocket for something is that is a reasonable risk. And to me, it's almost like that's as bad as overpaying in a way. Like, you know, I don't think, I don't think companies should be punished for, for getting their prediction wrong. And so, so anyway, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it, it it depends on on the on the project, but in general, if you're doing something novel, uh, something you know technologically advanced, uh, seems uh, doesn't seem like the right way to go. Yeah, I I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, back in the you know pre World War II days, a fixed price R and D because everything was fixed price, right? So all the fixed price R and D contracts were just like. Um, there was like fuzziness there and like they wouldn't actually hold people to like these deliverables in in that exact you must predict exactly what you're going to give me and if you veer from that then it's all on you kind of way so i wonder you know can we use you know more modular especially in these kinds of high risk development contracts use modular fixed price contract types and then more like agile work statements and then you can just kind of like keep iterating through and as long as you're happy because you, you even said with the cost plus government needs more kind of integration and hands-on role in that in that way so if they're already doing that they should be able to kind of you know hold contractors accountable through the modular structure and not really you know over you know emphasize particular deliverables or particular outcomes but really are you getting value do you see prospect in the future where you are still willing to allocate resources to continue this. Oh, no, I, I actually really like that idea. And I think it's, I think it's consistent with, with something I've been thinking about recently, which is um, that defense acquisition should think about adopting a v, more of a VC model where um, especially large extended programs that are technically complex should be broken up into kind of stages where there's go, no, go decisions. And I don't mean... I don't mean EMD. <laughs> yes, I don't mean milestone B, which is like is the only milestone that really exists in my mind because 
Yeah. It's like, you, you know, by the end of, if you're going to get to the end of it, it's like, you're going to, you're going to produce it one way or the other. So it's, it's really about breaking up TMRR and EMD, uh, in, in, you know, maybe to some extent the, you know, production phase, but more, more about breaking that development phase up into smaller chunks where you invest a certain amount of money. Um, and you see, you see if you make the progress, like did, did it get to the point where you feel comfortable moving on to the next, to the next phase? And, um, and so I think that would actually fit really well with a modular contracting approach where like, Hey, if you're not making progress in the first two phases, if you know, a VC firm is not going to throw a, a series C at you, if you're not making progress in, a, in the series A and B phases. Uh, and, and I really think that, uh, for, I think we, we might benefit from something like that where, um, you know, it's, it's like, we, we don't throw too much money at a problem and get nothing out of it. And we also sort of are able to hedge a little bit, you know, and. Uh, go go pursue somebody else if if uh, if someone if the the person that got award you know didn't wasn't able to kind of make it work you, you can you have time to pivot you know like twenty years in you know what I mean so yeah you'd also need a much lighter you know much lighter weight acquisition plan to kind of go along <laughs> with that right oh yeah yeah you're right uh, all right well next one we got here representative Elaine Luria had a nice long kind of scathing article in SimSec. Right-sizing the fleet, why the Navy's new shipbuilding plan is not enough. And so basically, uh, she's just kind of like, hey, you guys say you have some strategy and you're just divesting from all these platforms and not actually building a lot of platforms. Like, just freaking figure out your program plan and stick to the program plan. Uh, So here's a quote from her where she was quoting former Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman. First strategy, then requirements, then POM program objective memoranda, then budget. So she's like, just like, there's a strategy. What is the actual, you know, program plan to meet that strategy and then just do it over the next 30 years? I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm actually kind of against that quote because uh, that's, of course, the industrial age PBBE model version of the world. Uh, but interested in, in your thoughts. Well, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I don't like that very linear process, and I really don't like it over that time frame. So, so I don't like that aspect of it. But I do think it gets to something we've talked about, where uh, especially as DoD communicates to Congress, is this idea of like, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, what is it connected to? Is it is it randomness? Is it uh, you know, are you making decisions to preserve uh, organizations? You know, is it empire building? Like. You know, I think I think it is sometimes not clear to the Hill, and that was feedback you know we had on some of our you know budget discussions of, you know, why why what was the strategy here? Why did you do this? So I, I kind of I kind of empathize empathize with that aspect of like you know there should be a general strategy, right? The, the national defense strategy is out. Whether you agree with integrated deterrence, and I tend to agree with David Deptula that it, maybe it's not the best one, but if that's the strategy, then then you should mold your investments around that. And not that you should have these sort of like, you know, 20 year plans, because that's silliness, but you should have a five year plan of the things that you have, you have to go after the concepts that, uh, that you have to do, you have to meet. So like, for instance, we know, right, in the China fight, we're going to need munitions, we know, we're going to need uh, missile defense systems, if we want to protect some islands, we know, we're going to need, you know, some, you know, ways to take out ships and to have air superiority, like we, we know some of these basics, how you meet that, you know, should be more dynamic than it is today. But but I, so I empathize with her that, you know, when you talk about things like VLS cells, 
it does kind of boil down to like, we know we're going to need capacity. We're going to need the ability to take out a lot of different, you know, military capabilities and, uh, and having VLS cells, you know, gives you, gives you that capability. And so I think she made the point really good, really good paper. It was actually really good. Yeah. I completely like I'm, I'm on board with you there. And she, she said here, the current budget proposal to decommission five cruisers along with last year's to de- decommission seven cruisers. And of course, cruisers, I believe they're over 120 or so VLS cells per ship, which is the highest of, of the ships that we have. So that's going to result in a loss of 756 VLS cells by the end of 2023. So that's just the end of next year. And then between 2021 and 2027 timeframe, that Davidson window the Navy will lose 1,668 VLS cells. And so it looked like she actually went in and did a little, because I was a little bit confused about the numbers that they were showing in the shipbuilding plan. It looked Mm -hmm. like they were decommissioning all this stuff, and yet the VLS cells weren't going down as much as I necessarily would have expected. And the number of ships were actually, like the total inventory was higher than I expected too. So it looked like um, she went in there and did a little... rethinking of that math which is kind of surprising that the navy would i'm not really sure where those those figures came from then right i don't think they were normalized or whatever what what have you is there were sort of two different uh scales and stuff so i i think it was i you know i don't want to say intentionally misleading but you know you do have to wonder kind of what was going on there so yeah she took she took the raw numbers and, and ran them as a single linear graph and yeah, definitely showed a different story. So, yeah, if that's true, I didn't have the Excel spreadsheet to see. But if yeah. you trust the math there, you know, uh, it's pretty, that's a pretty bad situation. It does make you wonder. And I really, what I really liked about her paper was, I think uh, what often happens in these situations is that the decision makers will default to just saying, no, nope, you need to keep the cruisers forever, even though it doesn't make sense. And maybe they're like, you know, they're rusting out or something. But she gave like other options, like she actually talked about like these expeditionary fast transport ships uh, that have a 64 cell capacity. So not as much, but you actually could build those faster or, or use the military sea lift command ones and get that capacity back for a lower cost. I thought that was a really kind of interesting option. So, yeah. Or just let uh, the Navy put VLS cells onto... Unmanned surface ships. <laughs> I know. I know. I thought that too. I was like, I was like, um, don't we have twos that are just sitting around not doing anything? Uh, why don't we start producing those? Yeah. Yeah. I guess my only, the only thing, like, it was a good paper. I just, my only thing that I get hung up on is just like, she's just like, oh, there's some immaculate strategy out there. The NDS implies like this is the exact right number of ships and four structures, and just like figure it out. And I'm just like, the way that resources map to strategy is always going to be in a state of flux and full of contingencies and you should plan but you should also plan to accept change right and and knowing that like the plans are reality mismatch if you just look at these shipbuilding plans over time you're just like what was the point of even planning <laughs> like you just change it all the time and it's just like it's just varying all the time right yeah, I, I, and I definitely agree with you on that. I, I just, I will say, I have seen, I have seen some statements lately that just make me completely empathize with the congressional members because it's like, it's like the Air Force saying, you know, this new agile combat employment concept, yep. and them saying like we need to be able to operate from these, you know, 
basically expeditionary bases, right? Which let's be honest, they're going to have, you know, dirt runways or very unimproved runways. Um, not the typical landing strip for B-21 and F-35s and NGADs. So, you know, but we're going to buy, we're only going to buy these super exotic aircraft right. that no doubt will need all kinds of special treatment. Um, oh, by the way, we're, we're going to, we don't care about quantities. We only care about quality. Um, well, if you're going to deploy distributed across the entire Pacific, uh, South Pacific, you might need quantity. So there is a point where like what leadership says and then the investments they make, you just go, I'm sorry, this like doesn't even, doesn't correlate at all. So there's the, the logic breaks down and, and then you just go, okay, is, is this totally arbitrary or do you guys have some plan here? It's like, so that's my I, question. I'm, who's, who's like, there's a need to plan. But who does the plan? And does the way that like the bureaucracy works actually mean nobody's at planning, right? Instead of like, because it feels like the people who execute the plan should be the ones primarily in charge of making the plan because they have to execute what they decided. And you can have people like influence that into joint requirements and, and these other types of things that necessarily must affect the policy of those plans. But it, it just feels like, you know, if the Navy can't plan and the Air Force can't plan to do the things that they say they want to do, then like we're in a really bad place if congressional staffers are the mo like the most adult, the most knowledgeable and the most like adept at making defense choices at that level. I think to some extent you're right. I think the I do think the bureaucracy sort of like beats the logic out of some of these things. I think they're. Well, one thing we do know is that the the, the concept development shops were, were pretty much decimated over the last 20 years. And it just, uh, it, you know, we were focused on the counterterrorism fight. And so th those folks that were focused on the high-end fight sort of got pushed to the wayside. And so uh, we, we need to bring back concept development because you need to be able to stay stay on top of, of an enemy, a dynamic enemy like, you know, like China. You know, they're, they're evolving too fast. And so one of the things is that you need those folks to be able to influence some of these decisions because they are looking holistically at this. Whereas individual requirements, people that are focused on their individual domain or their little individual capability area, they're not seeing the full picture. And so they're making decisions based on the, the knowledge they have or maybe what they're being told to do. And, and then I think they it becomes sub-optimized. So, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a bureaucracy. I don't think it's individual people because there's too many smart people out there. So. Yeah, that, that's what confuses me. <laughs> so let's move on. This is actually a really, I think, important story. Uh, in a new directive, U.S. Army reigns in Army Futures Command. And of course, Army's Futures Command, which kind of got stood up in the 2018 time frame, uh, actually became the lead of the modernization enterprise. So as USD ATNL, uh, Acquisition Technolo Technology and Logistics, got split up into R&E and ANS, um, like that was actually kind of also happening a little bit at the service level and army futures command, which is on that R and E side generally uh, they actually took a lot of the modernization enterprise planning. And I think the program choices for RDT and E appropriation. And so it looks like that didn't go over well. I heard some consternations on that front, but it looks like ASALT, which is the acquisition um, executive in his office is now taking over not only some of those prerogatives in the modernization enterprise, but also the science and technology arm itself. So 
I believe that means like Army Research Lab and and all those other labs that they have there in the Army. Um, so the the tagline here is Army Futures Co- Command clearly still develops requirements and concepts, but now has a much more limited role in acquisition of capabilities. Interested, you know, what have you heard? And I'd be interested to like really understand what it was that was going on underneath the hood there. Yeah, I, I did read this memo, and I, and I do recall when General Murray back in the day was first, you know, sort of being stood up the Army Futures Command. It was envisioned as this like one-stop shop. And if you look at the organization today, you you have I think I want to say there's five or six core func- capability functional teams. Yep. And they were very focused on like you know long range fires and C two and you know things like that. Future so, vertical lift. Future yeah. vertical lift. Yeah, Next exactly. Generation combat vehicle. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So so they were focused on those things, and I think there was a thought process that we are bringing together the operational side. We're bringing in the acquisition side, and uh, we're also bringing in like you know actual users, right? Not just the operational planning side, but bringing in users. And so they were very much about sort of integrating all that. And I think that vision was, uh, I think that vision was good, but I also think uh, Army Futures Command quickly got too big and maybe a little bit unmanageable. And so, uh, and they also never really had clear delineation of acquisition responsibilities. So there was like, I feel like it was always them sort of stepping, you know, over the line where ASALT, uh, really uh, technically had authorities, but they were able to get away with it because General Murray was such a kind of a charismatic guy. But when he left, I think some of that started to break down. And so, you know, now it's clear that, you know, they needed to unblur some of those things. And so, right, ASALT will execute the programs, right? They will make those acquisition decisions, but it's not as if Army Futures Command is being, you know, completely you know, kind of neutered here, like this is, they have a lot of control, right? They, they're going to set the requirements, the, you know, all the, the, the you know, uh, the, uh, what was the particular force design, force development capabilities developer. They're also considered the operational architect. They are going to, they're still going to have those CFTs, just like joint staff does. They're still going to be, inf- be able to influence those investments. And they have a real say because the chief of staff ultimately, you know, kind of sets a lot of those priorities the secretary has to sign off on them, but it's driven a lot by the chief. And so uh, for Army Futures Command, will have a say in that. And so I don't think this is all that bad. I think it's really just sort of putting them back more in the lane of maybe where they should have been focused on is like, hey, let's look to the future. You know, let's talk to, you know, companies and commercial, the commercial sectors. Let's talk to, you know, all the different, uh, you know, innovation entities and see what's possible. And then, you know, but ultimately the acquisition side will have to make a call about what's the best business decision. So, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm sort of, I'm sort of like 50, 50 on like, yeah, this, this seems fine to me, but. But it also feels like, you know, it's a signal that the ATNL split experiment kind of failed, right? Like, well, acquisition is just taking back control of everything, right? The SNT is now back under, uh, acquisition assault which is kind of weird to me to a degree um but i guess that follows the historical norms and you know it looks like r&e was supposed to get at least milestone a decision authority at one point a few years <laughs> ago that didn't happen so like what is r&e 
you know, to a degree. It's it, it like already at that level, but then also at the services level, seems like it's kind of getting cut back in that vision of, oh, there's the acquisition culture, which is like sustainment and, you know, planning and production control versus like this innovative new area that we can like really drive forward innovation. It looks like that vision is just kind of, it's just gone these days. Uh, or like, <laughs> not that it failed, but like, you know, it's not just, it's not believed in anymore. And, and the folks in the leadership positions don't really see it like that anymore. I guess I sort of, um, I mean, there, there definitely is a case in some, in some particular instances where, you know, maybe the operator should have um, execution authority or, you know, acquisition authority. And I think cyber is one of those areas. And I think that's why you're seeing now with cyber command, it will be essentially be your J8 shop making most of those investment decisions and saying uh, what we need are, you know, these types of tools that can, you know, do, do these types of cyber, you know, cyber offensive, defensive operations. Um, and, and they will be driving that. It will be less of an acquisition decision uh, in many cases, even though they do have a PEO. It's really going to be driven by the operation side. So I think that makes sense because that is a, a functional community that, that has, has expertise. They understand all the intricacies and their operators, the cyber mission forces are, are integrated. Um, I think when you start to get into some of these other ones, I like to think of it like a commercial company where, you know, you have your sort of like, you, you know, kind of the innovation shops, like the the, 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 the the teams that are going off and sort of like trying to pull together different, different, different things that they, you can take as a, as a product to, you know, to actually turn into a marketable thing. And so you have those teams that are doing that, but ultimately you do need like the product development team and the marketing team to turn it into something that can be sold. And I think that's where a little bit where the acquisition community does have a real play is like, if you let the operators go after every single thing that they thought was cool, it could get really messy. And, I've, and the Air Force did try this and it was sort of one of those things where like, you know, the acquisition community had to be like, well, we have to think about this and you have to integrate that and you have to have this training. And you could, you could say they're a wet blanket, but I think in a point they were a little bit of a balancer to say, Okay, you want to get all of this. Let's let's look at this and try to come up with the best business plan, something that we can satisfy our statutory requirements, of course, but then we can also keep this as a fair competition because we can't just go to that one vendor that you like. Um, and so I, I think they both have a role here. They just need to sort of, you know, once again, collaboration comes into play. They just need to work together and, and do the right handoffs and you know be able to get over that valley of death without, uh, you know. Uh, dealing with some of the things that we've talked about. Yeah, well, maybe maybe uh, Army Futures Command did what it needed to in the time frame that was there and like really helped Esper and others kind of make those um, zero-based budgeting night court kind of things to really drive after the 31 plus 5. And it looks like they really did kind of make a lot of moves in the budget structure and, and what modernization priorities were in that time frame. And Maybe it's time just to to neck that down and just go execute on it, right? So um, maybe there is some logic to these pendulum swings of acquisition reform in in the long run, but uh, still, I think it's I think it's a sign overall of of the times and where we are on that pendulum <laughs> that it is swinging back a, a very distinct way. Well, I mean, I will say on that if that is true, if all these project convergence exercises that Army Futures Command is running. If we do see in a year or two that none of them are resolving, if the acquisition community is not picking up any of them, but they're just going back 
to the same crimes for every single thing, uh, then, then I think you'll be proven right. Yeah. That will be. Yeah. Tracking our project convergence, because they've done a really great job, I think, of that as well. And those we've been tracking those experiments. So that will be, yeah, if they keep it up and they keep, you know, fielding things from that and, and bringing lessons learned into the acquisition and, and buying those things, all the better. But if that falls flat, then maybe we can point it to this as, you know, one mm-hmm. of those things that that led in the wrong direction. Um, yeah. A lot to, to look at, but we're running up on time. There's a lot more to, <laughs> to get through. We've just been Sorry. we've been like circling Sorry. the drain on some of these. So let's move a little bit faster. Hacker finds out hackers find more than 400 vulnerabilities in DoD industrial based companies. So over one year, hackers probed 41 companies and found 400 vulnerabilities. The first vulnerability report arrived in seven minutes after the contest started. 1,400 pro and amateur hackers from 44 states were creating thousands of reports here over over the program. And it looks like uh, DOD Cyber Crime Center and DOD Vulnerability Disclosure Program has recognized the benefits of utilizing crowdsource ethical hackers to do this kind of in-depth protection. So, you know, there's also talk on CMMC 2.0 kind of rolling out next spring or so. Uh, but I just really like, you know, this kind of like network of ethical hackers or white hat hackers, just like doing penetration testing and just like, you know, across a much wider swath of companies and, you know, using that, (laughs) relying on maybe a balance between formal just documentation, right, and verification of documentation and procedures versus like actually getting in the fight, right? Because these these cyber things are just going to be happening all the time. So you know, the more you subject yourself to it, uh, the better probably for resilience. Yeah, whenever you talk to cybersecurity experts, they always say like, there, there's really no substitute for a red team, a really kind of competent red team. So yeah, you know, a lot of these kind of ethical hackers, they, they make a living finding zero day, you know, um, you know, defects and stuff. And so this is just like, this is just, feed, this is just feeding them. This is, this is everything they live for. So it's, yeah, I love it too. It's great. Uh, Marine Corps Aviation Plan makes digital interoperability a top priority. And so it looks like they're doing a lot here, um, trying to understand it. Comprehensive gateway and spectrum agile radio to handle message translation and network management of tactical data links. So by fiscal 2024, every Marine Corps aviation platform will have a way to transmit and receive multiple standard links. So it looks like mostly a kind of standardization of, of tactical data links and, and how they, they treat those data and syntax and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this one I don't get. I will be honest. Um, and I need to read more about it because I, well, I couldn't find I'm glad you said that because I was struggling to be like, okay, what exactly is happening here for the MAGTIF? You know? Well, for one, I'm looking at the MAGTIF. The MAGTIF is aviation is going to be mostly uh, F-35s. Uh, you got some B-22s and you know, some helicopters and stuff, but, uh, the F-35, like the whole idea with the Marine Corps, you know, getting that aircraft is that they would be, be plugged into, uh, the larger sort of F-35 network, um, you know, which is a incredible data processor. Um, it's more data processor than fighter jet, I always like to say. So, um, that's, that, that data gateway is the, is Mattle. So it's kind of interesting. They call it Mangle versus Mattle, but yeah, why, why, why why not expand metal uh, i'm sure i'm sure they could have uh, 
uh, sort of maybe done some upgrades to the very uh, small numbers of helicopters and uh, well, they're, they're going to get the MQ-9, right? And the MQ-9 is not going to accept metal. Yeah, well, the MQ-9 might be tougher, but that yeah, maybe that maybe that is a problem. But I don't know. I'm a little bit surprised that this is like they're making this as the be all end all. Maybe this actually does allow metal to be to go on there, and that was one thing I couldn't really tell from the information I had. But uh, yeah, immediately I was sort of like. Why are we abandoning metal? That was the that was the whole uh, the whole point of going all in on the F thirty five. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the F thirty five program was based on making that turbo turbo lift uh, fan work um, for the Marines. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to watch this one. Admiral Gilday explains LCS, ASW, and MCM mission modules, and of course, uh, that's anti submarine warfare and mine countermeasures. So the Constellation class frigates are going to be the gap filler for anti-submarine warfare, which LCS um, variable depth sonar didn't really work as well as it should. By the way, the LCS is as noisy as an aircraft carrier. Uh, <laughs> I guess I picked up on that too when I read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so maybe people are going to hear you coming if you're trying to look for them. But and then the mine countermeasures modules are on track to IOC. Um, so right on. I, I love the I love that statement. Said so there are some big challenges there that we should have picked up on way earlier. It's like, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, I think so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the Army's uh, future attack recon aircraft is getting set back by delays from the uh, the ITEP engine program, and so looks like they're now going to start flying. They're they're running into issues integrating the ITEP engine into the uh, into the Raider X and the Invictus, which are about 80% complete. And so it looks like they're going to fly them in FY24. So they pushed them out maybe about a year. Army won't enter Milestone B until 25. Maybe this shows that, you know, what, what I thought about when I was reading this was, you probably just need like, I'm going to capability drop a helicopter and let's just, what whatever is available at this time, let's do it. But building something around like a new engine that hasn't been tested. It seems like you're just dragging out the whole darn program because of the one subsystem. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a little bit where F-35 is at right now, actually, because their engines yeah. are. So uh, engines are tough. They're always a super complicated item. This one, actually, they're reading into a little bit more. It sounds like they actually accelerated uh, that GE's engine. It was, it actually was supposed to be accelerated by 12 months. And so, this with COVID and everything else, it almost kind of brought it back to where maybe it should have been anyway. So I don't know, a year, they lost a year on this, but it sounds like otherwise they're uh, in reasonably good shape. And I think they did make some pretty interesting trade-offs on, on this particular platform in terms of like how the, the rear propeller was, uh, was configured and stuff like that. Like they, they made some, they made some design trade-offs and, yeah. So so far, yeah, it sounds like it they're... used to be ducted, and now it's not yeah. ducted. And they they were also saying like the requirements were literally impossible. Remember? So yeah. Like yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder whether Farah, you know, Farah and Far, Flora and Farah. I wonder if they're actually going to get fielded. What's going to happen with that? It's kind of like long cycle times, but it seems like a lot of the community around it is kind of sour to those programs potentially. Yeah, but they, they do need it unless they're going to get that future vertical lift uh, that, you know, the SOCOM can really make that thing, the electric system work or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
they don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of options yeah. yeah no that's true true that i guess you could just buy the hell out of uh blackhawks for forever but mm. um yeah I don't know if it's going to actually meet the the mission needs that they're looking for on longer range and then the the recon stuff as well. So, um, Eglin Research Lab turns fighter jet into submarine. I, this was a weirdly titled one. But yes, really, <laughs> <laughs> right. It was, but this was the Quick Sync program. So AFRL, they destroyed a full size marine vessel with an air to surface missile launched from an F fifteen. It was basically a JDAM that they modified to go under a ship and then explode under the ship and break the keel as opposed to just kind of like hitting a hole in the side of it and the, the ship can do some damage control. So that's, that's interesting. The The title didn't make any sense, but it's, it's an interesting capability. Yeah. I got really excited for a second there. I was like, no freaking way. Like, yeah, me too. I was like, <laughs> like, like, like an F-15 like flying under the water. Into into the water and just like, you know, just like sort of like, uh, you know, com, uh, it's cartoon style, you know, like the wheels go in and the, yeah. So no, it's not that. And actually this has been under development for a really long time. So this has been worked on, I don't know, it's probably been like eight years or something that they've been playing around with this. So not a completely new thing, but it is good to see that it is working. Um, yeah, but uh, would you, know, you want to put an F-15 within, no, what is no. it, like 30 miles maybe? Yeah, 25. Yeah, yeah. I know that's that's <laughs> like, my, that's my big issue. With it. Yeah, this thing better have some extended glide uh, to get, you know, double, triple the distance in order for you not to be within range of some cruiser that's going to be like, oh, hey, there's an F-15 right there. Let's take that out. Yeah. So, yeah, so definitely <laughs> JDAMs are not your long-range munition of choice. So, yeah. Uh, U.S. Navy wirelessly beams 1.6 kilowatts of power a kilometer using microwaves. And so the, the real point here is terrestrial power beaming link. It's a good proof of concept for space power beaming which we've been hearing about and would be super cool if we can just like charge our cell phones from space without, <laughs> you know, any kind of connections, but interesting experiment. And it was cool to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm still a little bit amazed by this whole one. Like it almost is still like sci-fi in my head. So um, I don't fully understand it. I got to, I got to, I got to read some more uh, popular science on this one. Yeah. <laughs> NGAD price per tail will be more than double that of an F 35. So uh, Kendall was talking about the NGAD fighter would cost multiple hundreds of millions of dollars on an individual basis. And then the program will also include the NGAD program will include broader elements, including less expensive, autonomous, uncrewed and, uh, capabilities and have a tailorable mix of sensors, weapons, and other mission equipment. But it still feels like, you know, as you're saying with agile combat employment, you're going for a really high end you know, NGAD fighter here, obviously it's going to be stealth, have a lot of, you know, other capabilities. Uh, but yeah, definitely kind of moving away from the tradable. I wonder what's going to get traded off. I mean, if costs grow, you know, I'm sure that autonomous, uncrewed, tailorable mix of sensors is kind of going to get the short shrift. Yeah. And I mean, to the last point, they keep saying that that will include aircraft that are much less expensive, autonomous and uncrewed, but I just don't understand that. This is another one of those logic things where it's like you are going to build a super high-end aircraft that's stealthy and has all these EW sensors and all this thing. Are you really going to trail a bunch of less uh, 
a, a less capable, you know, drone unmanned aircraft behind it and like yeah. present yourself with a huge target. No, that doesn't make a bit of sense. So I'm still, the con ops on all this is still baffling to me. Um, and, and Gad, I mean, the way that that program has been structured, it is sapped up to the gills, which means I, I struggle to see how they will have really, you know, easily modular sort of competitions because how many companies will be cleared to know what's, uh, what needs to be upgraded and, and the design specs and all this stuff. And it's just, it's, I don't get it that how this is the, uh, the future. I, um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be, it's probably going to be more of like a bomber type situation, sort of like a smaller B-21. I think there's been some indications of that so that it has more range and things, but you know, so we're going to have to buy a bunch of B-21s. Like if this thing probably is not get into like, close air support slash like fighting like yeah. straight up like fighter tactics then yeah it's going to be it's going to be probably a smaller cheaper bomber um because you know we've quickly realized that fighters don't have the range especially in the pacific so and we can't refuel them without putting those aircraft tanker aircraft at threat so yeah it, it's it's it probably makes sense but just the fact that it as secret as it is and as you know sort of high end as it is it's just that i I wish they had like sort of adopted a slightly different approach there. But the yeah, Navy we'll also see. has an NGAD, right? The FASX, yeah. and in this next one, there it, it will be the quarterback of unmanned aircraft in that MUMT manned unmanned teaming concept. Uh, the Navy says that NGAD for the Navy will actually increase somewhat dramatically over the Pentagon's five-year spending plans, even though those costs are still um, classified, but. It sounds like the Navy is kind of doing a lot of the same kind of thinking that the the Air Force is here, just kind of like a very exquisite high end, you know, fighter that's going to have more range, but kind of be like this quarterback of all these other things. And it's not really clear, as you said, what the con ops are there. Yeah, I think the Navy is actually being a little bit more open about uh, about theirs. Uh, they're they are definitely taking advantage of some existing uh, sort of programs. Um, so I think you'll see more about their approach uh, in the Air Force. Personally, I think they've just been a little bit earlier uh, or a little bit later to the game. So they're still figuring, I think, figuring some of this out. But they've already stepped out on some of the man-to-man teaming. Uh, I have very little indication where the Air Force is at on some of that. That uh, seems still fairly early stage because basically Skyborg has not sort of scaled like we thought it might. So yeah, I think I think we still have to watch watch and see see how things uh, play out here. But um, but yeah, it's uh, that's where it stands today. F-15EX program is in trouble. Uh, they were going to buy at least 144 of them, and now they're reducing that buy to 80. Uh, but actually, you know what Kendall was kind of saying here makes a little bit of sense. Like if they're going to go ahead and cut that. He's saying, well, let's just ramp up F-15 production in the short term and then end it prematurely um, and kind of, you know, ask the F-35As kind of go into that updated block four. Then we can kind of ramp up that capability. So, you know, I guess there's all this wiffle waffle and what's exactly going on here, but there's some logic I see to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only <laughs> the only thing we have to think about is you know, let's say we do have like a, a Middle East, Iran situation, or, you know, um, maybe there's like a, a North Korea type situation. If there's something where it's a lower end fight and we don't want to bring 
you know, all of our, basically at that point, we'll only have F-35s and, and yeah. GADs, right? We don't want to bring all of them into the fight. And like, you know, we know what the cost of a flying hour of an F-35 is, right? So um, we are going to have to have some other aircraft. And I think the F-15EX is a fantastic compromise because for one, it can carry hypersonics. It can carry a yeah. crap load of, of munitions. It's a great sort of kind of arsenal fighter uh to, to to you know to have uh to carry munitions into, into the fight and it also is a lower end uh aircraft with a much lower cost for flying hour but it still has you know some decent survivability capability uh, you know characteristics so um so i actually like it i kind of hope they keep buying it to a, at least a a certain level but yeah i have a change of leadership by the time that's rolling down and fix the change <laughs> right like we'll yeah see. <laughs> yeah we'll see yeah um, Air Force chooses Boeing E-7 wedge tail to replace old AWACS planes. And one of the, the, the thing that stood, stood out here to, I think, most people is that uh, the Air Force is using a rapid prototype. So it looks like they're using MTA here. Um, and they're going to field the first or they'll get the first prototype aircraft delivered in FY27. So five years, even though the wedge tail is already exists, it's already kind of performing the AWACS mission in the UK. Um, so this one didn't really make all that much sense to me, unless they're also developing a bunch of new kind of command and control and sensor and other things for the aircraft. But then it's like, it's not doing the same thing as the original intention, which seemed to be like this gap filler. So I'm oh, I confused think, on that. Yeah. It, I, this is the classic. Uh, I, I, I don't know the whole story here, but I, I'm going to surmise. It's very similar. If before ABMS, there was actually ABMS, which was supposed to be a basically a civilian aircraft that uh, had some of the characteristics of a, of, a, of a legacy AWACS. And so you basically kind of crammed electronics into kind of a civilian jet and you, you could do a lot of the, the same things, but, you know, some limitations. But it was it was supposed to be, you know, like the best of both worlds in terms of being cheaper, not developing a new airframe and all that. Um, but as I understand that, that started to getting, get it started to get pretty Cadillac. And it was one of those things where like, they just weren't going to be able to fit everything in and there was trade-offs and it was like sort of getting silly. And I think that was a little bit of, of why we moved to the new ABMS apart from just the fact that it made sense to sort of distribute command and control. But, but now I think we're in this similar situation with the E7 where, yeah, the, the UK version is probably a great 80%, 70% solution, but I guarantee you there are people in the Air Force like, well, we need to be able to do this and this, and what about that, and what about this? And and all of a sudden, you got like this super Cadillac version of it, and now they're going to spend five years in development. So I, uh, it's a shame, right, that uh, that we, we couldn't have maybe just said, you know what, if it works for the UK, uh, maybe this is okay as a gap filler, because um, it's not the long-term plan. So. Or at so, least yeah. just deploy what the UK has, and then like you can retrofit them or whatever, uh, right? Well, yeah, they, they probably that, didn't even give it a chance. Defer that decision. Yeah, yeah, I, I they could have probably at least like bought one or two, and you know, sort of maybe done a year's worth of experiments, sort of like they, uh, the Air Force actually did do that with a, a light aircraft, light attack aircraft. You know, so they could have done something like that, and then maybe come out with a decision. But it sounds like. It sounds like they just sort of like saw what the UK had and was like, no, we want, uh, you know, 10 other things, you know, like just this idea of like having, um, 
you know, air moving target indication radar. I'm sure the UK has that. I'm sure that the specs were not to the level that the Air Force wanted. Um, you know, battle management command and control. I'm sure the UK has pieces of that in their self-defense systems. I'm sure that, like all that stuff, I guarantee you that it's not like those are completely absent. It's probably just the, the level of. Doesn't have the it. bells and whistles. Right. Yeah. Um, competitor to Chinese J-16D, U.S. Navy could scrap its electronic attack squadrons of EA-18G growlers. And so that's 25 aircraft of growlers. Not all the non-carrier-based growlers will plan to be decommissioned in this next uh, budget submission from the Navy. And that's about a third of the department's total tactical jet electronic attack force, which is actually quite a bit. And the point here... Um, from the article is that the Chinese are actually kind of ramping up their electronic attack while we're kind of, you know, pulling it back. And one of the potentially puzzling decisions here is that the Navy is actually going to come out or actually the department with the next generation jammer pods, which will make those growlers even more powerful. Um, So yeah, it feels like electronic attack in a little bit short trips, but I suppose, you know, the F-35 has pretty significant electronic attack capabilities as well. Um, but yeah, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, the Growlers, I, I worked with some, some folks who were, who, uh, who operated those aircraft and it is a, uh, it's an EW dream. I mean, the, the amount of, uh, of uh, apertures on that aircraft is, uh, is kind of insane. So it's a, it's a significant capability. The Navy has gotten fairly used to operating with having some Growlers, you know, uh, you know, with other F, uh, F, F-18s and basically kind of going in as a, as a sort of a team, uh, you know, each doing their, their own mission. So th- this is going to change things up, but they're getting more F-35s. Uh, they'll still have F-18s and they can still put that next-gen uh, jammer, which still has a ways to go. So it's not like that's coming out any day soon. But, um, but yeah, when that actually does go into production and, and starts getting filled in, uh, that this can be added, and that will provide a nice pump up for the uh, uh, for, for the for the regular F-18s that don't have all the apertures on them. Uh, but F-35 has some very advanced capabilities, EW, that will be continually improved upon over its life. So, so yeah, I, th- I think I think all in all, it'll work out. But uh, yeah, EW will stay relevant. So I'm sure some Navy units will probably miss those growlers. Yeah. I'm sure they will. And the last one we'll do, Army to launch light robotic combat vehicle competition in FY23. So between 23 and 27, the Army plans to spend about $698 million um, on the prototype efforts. And there's also a software acquisition pathway. So it looks like they are kind of disaggregating this, this kind of system program into multiple um, adaptive acquisition pathways. And testing on the prototype will begin the first quarter of FY26. So they've already done subprime prototyping and experimentation. Here's another round of, of kind of more full system prototype from 23. And then that's kind of a three-year um, timeline. And then they'll kind of wrap that up and, I guess, get into production with something the end of the 2020s. So, yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah, I um, this is uh, it's one of my favorite programs. I really like uh, the approach they've taken, and you know, this is one of the early. You know, I will say I think they probably could have moved faster, uh, but a lot of this program was about kind of getting the collective army to get used to having sort of an unmanned system. This is one of those systems that will be in fairly close 
proximity to troops. And so you do have to sort of have a high degree of trust and, and safety. And so uh, they spent, I think, a lot of, lot of really valuable time uh, building up that, that, uh, that, that trust and that knowledge base that will pay off, I think, in future efforts that could probably move a little bit faster. Um, but I love their strategy, you know, using MTA in creative ways to do upgrades, continual upgrades to sensors, using the software pathway to, you know, kind of deliver, you know, uh, new autonomy modules, new capabilities that uh, the system will, will keep it relevant. Um, and just uh, kind of the creative ways they're going to be able to plug and play different weapons, different different uh, systems, uh, the tethered drone and things like that. It's um, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a game changer for the Army uh, and, and definitely I think troops are going to, you know, absolutely love it once it gets integrated and people get used to it. It's going to be amazing. You don't have to, have to carry heavy packs with batteries and all that stuff. I mean, troops are going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be unreal. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this program. Yeah, I think, I think I am too, um, but would like to learn a little bit more about it. I know that they've also been doing some interesting things on software and gov- like the army's owning a lot of that kind of software code and integration and they're kind of like owning that ip so it's an interesting model um that they're they're, that they're trying to use there and also leverage commercial robotic operating systems so yeah this feels like almost like you know it's really a digital story you know um and then there's like a lot of hardware wrapped around it including the crow system and all that but um that they need to integrate but yeah they'll be doing interesting yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you on the digital piece. I think this is a, a truly digital acquisition, you know, having uh, hardware in the loop for software testing, uh, basically being able to, you know, model aspects of the system and, and do upgrades um, and and sort of, you know, continually iterate on something that's modular uh, and that, you know, has basically different virtual virtualization layers so that you can add commercial stuff on top, but you do have government control over some of the key vehicle and machine pieces. And, and yeah, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's a, it's a model for the future. I hope it works out perfectly. Well, this has been a, a longer episode than normal. We haven't, we haven't <laughs> done this in a couple of weeks, but Sorry, everyone. You know, <laughs> hope you enjoyed it. And, you know, Matt, thanks for joining me. We'll talk to you next time. Pleasure. Eric. Thanks. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.